I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Diagnosing a rare disease can take years. When it's a disease that's never been identified before, the search for a diagnosis can be that much more difficult. Daryl Scott, Associate Professor of Molecular and Human Genetics at Baylor College of Medicine, and colleagues diagnosed four patients on two continents with a never-before-identified rare disease in a day. The feat is recounted in a recent study published in the journal PLOS One. We spoke to Scott about the diagnosis, how it all came together, and what it says about the role of data and collaboration in medical detective work today. Daryl, thanks for joining us. Yes, it's a pleasure to be with you today. We're going to discuss a recent case in which you and your colleagues were able to solve a medical mystery in record time, the genetic cause of a patient's intellectual disability, and in the process, diagnosed three other patients, all, all in a day's work, quite literally. Perhaps you p- can begin with the visit to the clinic where you see patients with developmental disabilities that started this. You saw a patient with macrocephaly, a, a condition characterized by an enlarged head. Who, who was this patient, and, and what did you know? What what happened? Actually, the story probably starts even a little bit before that. I had never met this patient before, so it was the first time they'd come to clinic. And I noticed that they were unusual, actually, before we even got there. Um, I had medical records that were available to me. I usually show up to work a little bit early in the morning to run through all the different cases I'll see that day. And this child was unusual in that he had a specific change on chromosome X. And perhaps you're aware that males only have one X chromosome. So it was a relatively small change. And the laboratory had reported as not being associated with a medical problem. Uh, what struck me as interesting was it was a small change. Um, but because males are often more affected with intellectual disability than females, I thought it was worth checking out. And so the, the real beginning or the interest in this, in this case actually started even before I saw this patient. And we began to look at the genes that were in this area on chromosome X that were missing in him and found that mice that have one of the genes missing in them also have intellectual disability. And so I began to think that maybe this change was perhaps the cause in this patient. Then I showed up to the clinic and saw that this child had other features that were different. Uh, As you mentioned, he had a relatively large head. So perhaps the most interesting feature that he had was he had extremely hypermobile joints. And so fingers and hands and wrists, elbows, all extremely flexible to the point where he required bracing as a child in order to be able to stand up, in order to be able to walk, and was delayed in his development because of his super hypermobile joints. When physicians get information like this, the the information you got from the lab about the the deletion, does the lab usually interpret these results? 
Yeah, so lab usually does a very great job, actually, of interpreting results, but they can only do so based on what's already known in the medical literature. So this particular test had been done in, in a very, very good lab, and they gave everything that was available, which in this case was nothing. And so there was no evidence in the human literature, at least, that this particular change could cause a medical problem. And so if one was to just go back and look at what doctors knew at the beginning of that day, um, there was nothing to indicate that this would be an issue. In fact, the patient was referred to me in order to do the next step of genetic testing, saying what other tests should we run to find out why this child has his medical problem. And it was only in actually looking at the mice that have this that we actually will be able to then identify that, hey, maybe we already have the answer is just sitting right here in front of us. And instead of moving on to the next test, perhaps we should spend a little more time in investigating what this change does. So what is a what is typically a, a physician do at that point? Do I mean, do they investigate on their own? Do they just say, okay, well, nothing's known about this, so we can't help you further? Uh, I must admit, that's one of the benefits of being a specialist in genetics is that we do have a little bit more time. So, for example, a pediatrician who sees a child like this would have a very difficult time um, because you just don't have the time to spend to look at all of these all the different possibilities, like in the mouse database, for example. On the other hand, we spend much more time with our patients, and that does give us the benefit of looking up things a little bit more. So yes, for, for a typical physician who's seeing many, many patients in the clinic, this would be nearly impossible. But this is the kind of job that a clinical geneticist should do um, because, again, we have a little bit more time to spend. When you got the information from the lab, how many genes were you able to identify in this deletion? So it's actually quite easily. They, the lab usually gives us a report that indicates how many genes are in the area. And then there's, again, other databases that we're used to using that allows us to check that for ourselves. And so in this particular case, um, there were two what's called pseudogenes, which may or may not make an important product, and two genes that definitely make a protein product. And so I'll hold four different genes in this area, which is a relatively small number. It made it easy for me to check in just a morning. Now, you mentioned you began with a mouse database. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, so I, I also run a research laboratory, and we find that often mice models give us information about human disease <laughs> and vice versa. And so we find ourselves constantly going between what we see in our patients and what we see in mice that we have in our laboratory. And so I found it a very powerful thing to be able to use the mouse databases that are available to us. Say, well, if you, for example, have a mouse that does not have this gene, what are the phenotypes or the medical problems that a mouse would have? And how does that relate to the medical problems you see in your patient? And so, yeah, actually the biggest clue came from looking at the mouse database and then saying, hi, I'm going to see a patient that may have something similar. So the mouse database suggested there may have been a linkage between these missing genes and intellectual disability, but then you went to use another database called Decipher. What's Decipher, and what did you do with that? Yeah, so some of the databases that we use as clinical geneticists contain data on individuals who are, quote-unquote, normal. These are people from the general population who have had tests run 
and then their data is stored in these databases. We also have databases of individuals who have come to medical attention because they have a medical problem. Decipher is one of those databases, and so it catalogs especially changes in chromosomes, and so kind of change that my patient had, and it will list sometimes dozens of patients that have the same piece of DNA that's missing. And so it's a very powerful database. And in this particular case, it was easy to search. I just had to put the region that I was interested in into the database and displayed all the patients that had that same deletion. Many of them have very large deletions, which is not very helpful. My patient had a very small deletion. And so in the Decipher database, I found one entry that said that there was an individual who had a very small deletion that was almost identical to the one that my patient had. And what did you do then? So at first I was a little bit frustrated because sometimes there's a lot of a lot of information about the medical problems that this, that the patient in the database has. In this particular case, there was no information, just that there was a similar change. I was about to just abandon everything and go search somewhere else when I noticed that they had added a little box that I had never seen before that said contact physician. Um, this must be a new feature. And I said, wow, I've never used that before. Well, let's give it a try. So I tapped the box and then typed in a note to this physician who, for me, was just anonymous. Um, I typed in a note and said, I'm going to see a patient in clinic today who has a similar change as your patient. I was wondering what your patient has and see if we maybe have patients that have something similar. In other words, could this be causative? At the time, I only knew that the patient had an intellectual disability, and so I told this anonymous physician that, and then I uh, hoped that he would respond to me. I uh, went off to clinic without knowing whether he would or not. Do you also bring in other folks at this point, or was that after? I'm sorry, say that again? There were other folks at your institution that got involved in this. Was that at the same point or later? Yes, and so, so that was one area of inquiry. And the other one was to actually look at the databases that we have that are from the clinical lab that we have here at Baylor College of Medicine. And so we run a clinical lab that does these types of tests. And one of my colleagues has a research program, um, that's Dr. Seema Lalani, and she can use her research protocols to look in the database and see, again, if there's any other individuals that have a change that might be similar. And so I wrote her an email, because it was very early in the morning, wrote her an email and said, would you help me by looking in the database and see if you have any similar patients? And I also asked her if I could then enroll the patient I was going to see in her research study so that we could actually work a little bit more on this over the coming days to try to find out if we could perhaps, again, find enough patients to prove that this was really a causal a causal change or the change that was causing the problems in my patients. You ended up hearing back from, from both your colleagues at Baylor and, and the doctor you had reached out through through the Decipher database, what what happened? Yeah, so it was it was kind of an interesting, again, a very interesting day. I went to see my patient in clinic. I noticed that he had these very unusual features, especially the hypermobile joints. 
we know that children are, are hypermobile compared to adults. But this is a child who was above and beyond in his mobility of his joint. It was, a, it was very special. And sometimes when you see something like that, it can, be, it can be critical because it lets you say, well, that's a special feature and it's very unusual and can we link that to somebody else? So I went, went back from clinic, went back to my office in the afternoon. I checked my email and I found an email from Alex Henderson, uh, who's a physician in the UK. He then described to me the person who was listed in the Decipher database. And he explained that he had two patients from the same family, both of whom had the same, the same medical problem. Um, the, the funny thing was he actually said in his email, they don't really have something very exciting. All they have is intellectual disability, hypotonia, and hypermobile joints. <laughs> and I laughed because I said, well, that's exactly what I'm seeing. And so I wrote him an email and said, I see the exact same thing in my patient. And he came back almost immediately with an email that essentially said, no way. <laughs> because we all of a sudden were, were onto something. I mean, it was such an unusual feature to see those joints that we knew that this had to be something that was causal. In other words, it was probably the cause of the of, of all these three patients now who perhaps had the intellectual disability, the hypermobile joints, all because of this change on chromosome X. I, I was kind of recovering from that email burst uh, and just thinking about what this really meant when Dr. Sima Lalani came into my room and said that there was a physician who wanted to talk to me on the phone. I honestly did not know who she meant. And she said, there's another physician, Patricia Evans, uh, from Dallas, who wants to talk to you about your deletion. And this was the first time I knew that there was actually another deletion that was in our database that was something similar. When I got on the phone with Dr. Evans, she then described to me her patient who had intellectual disability, hypotonia, which is kind of low tone, low muscle tone. And then she described the difficulty this patient had with their joints to the point where it was difficult to actually hold things. And again, once we, be, once we were able to hear that, um, it was again another eureka moment where you're like, this is, this is the same thing. We're all talking about the same thing. And, and yet no one had put it together before. The deletion we're talking about is XP11.22. Is, is this now a, a new rare or ultra-rare disease? Uh, it'll be interesting to see how rare it is. Certainly, it's, it's quite rare when you think that so far there's only four patients in the world that have this particular change. At the same time, there are, there are many more patients that have a much bigger change or a bigger deletion that takes in this same area. And so, so we talk about a syndrome as a collection of features that's all caused by the same genetic problem or the same genetic change. We find it powerful to be able to try to identify the smallest piece or the smallest change that causes that syndrome. And so in this case, we find a region that overlaps in all of our patients that is relatively small for us as geneticists. It's about 430,000 letters large, um, but that's a relatively small change. And so 
So yes, this would be an ultra rare syndrome for now in that there's very few people who are just missing that tiny piece. But again, there's probably many more patients that are missing a bigger piece and they could be affected by the same type of or the same genes that are in this area. So it's very hard to know just offhand how many patients this might this might apply to in the world. What's the implication of identifying the consequence of this deletion? What can we now do with this information? So one of the things that, that to me is interesting because I'm you know, also a researcher, I we want to not only know the genes that cause medical problems, but we also want to be able to model them in mice. And then the mice allow us to then look for ways to try to do something about these diseases. The thing that was exciting to me was the fact that there is already this mouse that has intellectual type disabilities. And so you have already a built-in model that will allow us to study one of those genes. There is not a mouse for another gene that's in this area that has, again, perhaps a role in brain development. That's called GSPT2. There's not a mouse that's developed for that, but you can imagine that now that it's in this important gene interval, there'll be more emphasis in trying to develop such a mouse. So again, we can see what it does in brain. And so this is this is kind of where where the the future is, if you want to say that. In other words, the next step is to use these mice to be able to understand what is this gene doing in brain, how does it work, and is there some way to correct it? If you can identify those kind of things, then you have a possibility of actually helping or treating patients. And so, again, that's a long way off because it is a lot of work, and sometimes there isn't an easy way to go from seeing it in the mouse to learning how to treat it. But that's, that's always kind of our hope, is that someday we'll be able to find an answer that would help us to help these patients. If I understood your work more broadly, you actually characterize genes that cause common life-threatening birth defects. Is it unusual for you to investigate something as rare as this case? Um, the It's a very fun question, actually. Our, we're in a very unique time in medical history where we have the tools finally to make many different gene discoveries. And so we now have the ability to not only look at specific genes that we think might be important, but much more broadly, we can use these tests, again, to identify something that might be brand new. And so I'm not alone amongst geneticists who are looking for unusual patients that might teach us something special. Um, and so. Yes, most of the things that I work on in the laboratory are more common than this particular change. Um, so we're always on the lookout. And so when we see something that, that's unique and different, we often can recognize that. And if we can put it together, it's well worth spending our time to do so. Um, and so I guess I would say this is its not my main area of interest or a main area of work. Um, but this is certainly a very, a very exciting hobby <laughs> that a lot of us as geneticists have. And, and again, you can sometimes, with a little bit of effort and a little bit of patience in coordinating with multiple different positions, you can find something that can greatly bless the lives of families. Because it's very, 
very difficult for families to, to, to have a child who has a severe disability and to not understand the why. And if we can even just give them the why, there's, there's great understanding and satisfaction being able to understand this. Then we can begin to, to tell them what's their future, and for example, what is their risk of having another child that has this, what's this child's risk of having a child that has something similar. It just it opens the door for information for families. So yes, we like to do these things. One of the great frustrations of having a rare disease is getting the diagnosis itself. On average, it takes about seven years for a rare patient to get a diagnosis. It, it took you a year to publish this work, but you and your colleagues diagnosed these four people across the globe in, in a matter of eight hours or so. What do you think this says about the practice of, of medical diagnostics today, the, the way data is used, and, and, and the role of collaboration? It's a uh... I must admit, this is always the case, it seems. I mean, we, we routinely make discoveries in the laboratory that take us sometimes years to publish because there is a little bit of skepticism, which is not a bad thing. What you do not want is you don't want the literature to be flooded with reports that you cannot substantiate. In other words, that are not good reports that might lead people to think, well, this is the cause, when actually they should be looking for something else. And so I understand that in, in all these things, we have to do everything correctly. Um, some of the things that we do in this particular case was to, to first obtain all the consents from all the different individuals who are involved. And so that actually takes quite a bit of time sometimes, especially when you're working on different content and everybody has a busy schedule, um, both families and doctors. The other thing is we wanted to do a few tests also just to make sure we understood how this was working. And so sometimes we needed to identify how this change was running in families and to make sure, again, that there weren't individuals who did not have any medical problems but also carried these changes. Perhaps the most important thing we, we needed to do in this particular case was to determine if all the mothers were carriers for this deletion. That was important not only on a research basis, but also on a, on a clinical basis, in other words, to help them. Most of the most of the changes that we see on the X chromosome, or at least a lot of them, can cause disease in boys because boys only have one X chromosome. However, their mothers have two X chromosomes, which allows them to often escape the effects of these of these changes. Um, in the end, what we found in this fam these families is that all the mothers in all three families carried this change. This was important to us because now we could say, well, yes, a female can carry this and not have any symptoms, as far as we can tell, and yet can be at very high risk for having a child that has a serious medical problem. Um, those kind of tests do take time, and they take they take both time, effort, and money to do that. Um, one of the things that that would be great is if we had a little bit more of everything, right? A little more time, a little more money to be able to do some of these studies. Um, but it needs to be done in order to be able to make it correct. So I don't mind so much that it takes us a while to do it. Um, it's just that we have to make sure we do it right. Um, it is it is a little bit of a daunting path because again you can sometimes make a discovery and then the question is do you have the ability to 
to actually take that discovery and go all the ways that we can share it with somebody else. And it does take a little bit of time to do so. Daryl Scott, Associate Professor of Molecular and Human Genetics at Baylor College of Medicine. Daryl, thanks so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.